this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. Aliens. That's a nice transition. <laughs> but please, I mean, just because I have literally no idea where you've gone with all. I mean, it's it's it seems like our 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 roads diverged in a wood. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And although I think our brains, in in essence, kind of fall towards the same things that we're interested in. It's still it's still so far from where I inherently remember you being. You know, it's really funny. Um, I told you I was going through and listening to some older stuff because there's certain, like, the, I don't know if you remember, we had the one conversation about Singularity is Near where we talked about um, sending calculations back into the past. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm, the, the whole episode's available for Patreon listeners, but that one part of the conversation, that's still something that I think people would find interesting in the new show. So yeah. I was looking for little nuggets like that, you know, like little five to at maximum 15 minute clips where we were talking about something that, number one, we both didn't sound like idiots when we were talking about it because <laughs> there were times that we talked about things literally out of the blue. And you can tell that neither of us were really prepared to be having the conversation we were having, which oh, is yeah. fine. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But I don't need to pull those out and go, here you go, audience, check this, you know, listen to the two of us talk about something we don't know about. <laughs> but there were moments like that where it's like, oh, this is a this is an, a topic that's on it's on a topic that's on topic. I'm I'm being redundant, but you know what I mean. This fits. Mm-hmm. It's apropos for the content of the show and it's a good conversation. So they would get something out of it. Yeah. Although my my whole perspective on the podcast is very different um we'll go back to that i want to answer what you were saying first when i was going back and listening to those i had a perception about those conversations that we had about the weird things that was actually not very close to the truth i i thought that i was 
number one, I didn't think they happened very often. And in fact, they happened a lot when mm-hmm. we would talk about that kind of stuff. I remember both of us being far more cynical. But in going back, we really weren't. Really? There were, there were moments where I would catch, um, maybe not the same time, but there were times where we would almost be like hedging ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, I don't want to sound like a weirdo here, even though we're totally going down that road and totally interested in what we're talking about. It's almost like we were doing it for social protection. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, like, sure. for example, in one of them, you would start to get weird and you go, I don't want to sound like a weirdo. And then wow. you would get weird. <laughs> or or I would say, not that I believe in woo-woo. And then I would talk about woo-woo for like 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah, so okay. i just i think what's interesting about it is that our perception of our cynicism on those things um is more artificial than it actually was huh, the truth of it is actually that we're far more interested and open to it than we thought we were mm. and what was the thing that i said i was going to go back to you remember oh my god <laughs> well i guess we're right back into where we were oh i know um the direction of the show. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In the sense that uh this is something I've come to very recently. And I've been I don't even remember how I got to it. It's I've been through so many different things now. I don't actually articulate my thoughts to other people very often. So like it's it feels like shoveling <laughs> to go back and remember <laughs> where thoughts came from. Because I mm-hmm. just keep piling stuff on my but what I really do with the show now is it's literally for me. Because I found out that the, I asked myself, I'm like, why am I doing this? And it was because I felt like in order to read this stuff and to go through the stuff that I'm fascinated by, it felt really passive to just read it. That I wasn't forcing myself to articulate it actually made me start to understand. And you know how the brain works, you know, you're, you're built like I am. Like the more we cogitate something, the more that we become able to understand it, both, you know, believe and disbelieve, you know, like to be able to understand Mm -hmm. the process of it. So I started to realize that the podcast, especially in the solo form that it is, it's really just, it's a focal point for me. It's a mechanism for me to learn. Oh, interesting. So when I go into the episodes, I really don't give a shit whether anybody wants to listen to it. It's literally, I'm creating an audio record for myself. So it's like a notebook. Yeah. So pulling things from those old episodes, it's like, oh, I want to preserve this because my, you know, my chances of going back and listening to the full 130 something episode archive of the other show are slim. But if I can find little nuggets to put into my feed for myself, cool. When I want to, you know, like if I want to go two weeks and I don't have anything to say, I don't put on an episode. I want to do four days in a row. I do because I mean, my numbers have just plummeted because of the change, but I don't give a <laughs> shit. Uh, fascinating though. Like in a weird kind of way, it feels like you've always headed towards that. Mm-hmm. You know, like now thinking back through the different iterations of the show and what you've said about it all along, um, even in bits and pieces where you were describing what it, what it was to you. I feel like it was always headed this way. Well, what I didn't understand was the context of what I was doing. I think, and for a while, I definitely got lost in the whole, 
wow, podcasting is fun. Maybe this podcast can be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe I can do this for, you know, make make, make money doing this or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I, I lost the context of what I was actually doing. You know, like, why am I reading this? Why am I talking about these things? Why am I doing these things? And it's to understand them better. But why do I want to understand them better? And what I had to actually come back to, you might be surprised that I forgot this, was to be able to write books. Huh. So (laughs) once I realized, I'm like, oh, that's my ultimate goal. Then I was like, I don't give a shit if anybody listens to podcasts then. Mm -hmm. Because the podcast is just a tool for me to get the goal of what I really want to do. So wow, that's crazy. Yeah. That's a that's an interesting leap. I didn't know. I mean, I, I could kind of sense some of that just from some of your social media presence. Like if it, it felt like you were headed back in that direction, but it's weird to hear you vocalize it. It's just yeah, there's just a, a moment of like social media presence is like n- nil again right now because it just I'm not interested in it. Yeah. I'm just tired of people listen listening to on Twitter people whine and then on Instagram people trying to, you know, whatever front. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's just, it, and then no no judgment of the people. It's just like it was a noise for me. Mm-hmm. It was distracting. I and mean, I realized I'm like, dude, even if I'm only giving this an hour a day, I can yeah. be doing something better with that hour. Like writing a book. Exactly. And that's what I've been doing. I've actually been scheduling myself in the afternoon. I'm I'm doing for the first time I'm I'm trying to do nonfiction. What? So, really? Huh. Yeah. Because I, I was half expecting, considering where this podcast has gone, I was expecting that you were going to head back to Charlie. I have a little bit, but I think right now that just needs to sit. I need to get yeah, something else so out. Weird. I just plucked that name out of my brain. Like I haven't thought about that in so long. <laughs> That's good. That means the name is fitting. That it just yeah. it belongs. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I wanted to, I want to do some nonfiction. What I, my my ultimate goal is to. There was a format that I that I played around with on the show a little bit before I got into um, what I was just talking about, mm-hmm. where I was presenting information about a topic and at the end asking critical questions about it. Yeah. I actually want to take that format and make that into my book format. Oh, so instead of, tr- instead of trying to do, you know, like uh, back to aliens, you know, you said, so aliens. Instead of trying to do a book about uh, abduction, I mean, sorry, an episode about abduction and fit (laughs) this massive amount of information that there is into like an hour, maybe two hour episode Mm -hmm. and ask critical questions at the end, I can do a book on that and then pull the critical questions in at the end. Oh, sure. It's the scope of the book is more fitting to the size of the topics. whereas. I can do with the podcast is just there's little, there's little things when I'm reading where I'm like, that's not part of a book project, this little idea here, but that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what, you know, like um, I did an episode about um, essentially about how the senses are not as reliable as we think they are. Like the there's a part in the singularity is near where Kurtzfeld talks about how what we actually see is only a hint or an outline of what is actually in the visual field. 
Sure. It's a that, very slim band. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he calls it, he says there's 12, 10 to 12 movies that the eyes record and all of them are res, low resolution. So one is only picking up contrast. One's only picking up edges. He says, so there's so much more information there. He says, but we will never know what the full information that there is because we could, I, he doesn't go into this. I assume what he's insinuating is that we could never build even a device capable of doing that because we wouldn't know how to do it because we don't know what isn't there. Yeah. And even from that perspective, um, I, I don't remember, I God, it's weird. It, it is weirdly synergistic. Some of this stuff. Um, I forget what I was reading. It was about a week ago and I was reading about how our perception of what the senses are in and of themselves is so rudimentary and so wrong. Our perception of the five senses, for example, um, even that idea is like a century old and it's wrong. Um, you know, our, our understanding of what our senses of is just so elementary, rudimentary and just incorrect. Um, like, I mean, there's that one shrimp that, that was given in the example that I saw um, that sees um, a color spectrum that's about 7,000% larger than ours. Oh, yeah. They talked about that thing on Radiolab one time. Yeah, exactly. And and it, like it can see infrared, like all the way up to like UVC B or C or something like that. So the what that what that freaking shrimp sees is so much broader of a range. And then they were talking about um, how a platypus um, maps its world through electromagnetic signals that it pulses from its bill. Jeez. Um, yeah. And so like, I mean, the platypus can literally swim through water at high speed without ever opening its eyes. And that's based on a very complex radar system that is hundreds of millions of years old. And how all creatures, um, given their lineages through the, the evolutionary chain, retain aspects of all of these senses because we all essentially come from the same genetic pool at the very beginning. Um, that there are, are certain aspects of our sensory organs that we have no understanding of. And it's not because our sensory organs aren't capable of perceiving these things. It's that because of social training or because of evolutionary time, um, we've learned to ignore the signals that come from them or um, we, they, they've become dormant uh, due to lack of use. Um, and it's even that one thing about like humans only use 7% of their brains or something stupid like that. I mean, it's such a weird, like how, how do you engage that? You know, how do you measure that? Um, so some of our, our weird colloquial understandings of how our, our, our bodies and our, our bodies perceive the universe is so weirdly skewed. Um, and so elementary that it's almost to the point where if we really want to start understanding what we're capable of as a species, we kind of have to start from scratch. Right. And I think that's my whole, that's part of what led me into being able to approach these topics from like a serious place because I realized I'm like, hold on a minute. We're operating as if all of this shit that we know is absolute. Yeah, sure. Um, we I don't, mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, the example I gave in the same episode where I talked about the eyeball thing is the black swan thing. Mm -hmm. It used to be considered stupid to think that there was such a thing as a black swan. Sure. But there is. There's a whole there's it's the Cygnus Atreides. They're in South Australia. They're all black swans. Yep. And then they started breeding them into the white swan population. So now they're all over the world. But people were uh, operating on the assumption. Not even the assumption. They were operating on the arrogant belief that all swans were white even though they hadn't seen every swan in existence. And 
that's like, I think that one of the things about scientific perspective in the popular sense right now, especially when it comes to cynical things about, you know, ghosts or aliens or whatever, is like, oh, that's stupid. That can't exist. How do we know? Yeah. We can't, we, we literally, science is incapable of disproving anything. Uh, I don't know about that. I just think, I just think that. I think that I think that it has to work much harder to disprove things. I think that you can't ever disprove it though. We'll never, we'll never know if we have all of the evidence. Yeah, but but you can you can operate as if something doesn't exist, and you can say I've found no evidence that this existed, but you can never say that this absolutely cannot exist. Yeah, but that but that means that we live in a world of absolute chaos, though. We do live in a world of absolute chaos. <laughs> that, that's definitely true, but the, the the point I'm trying to make is that you have to at least be able to make some reasonable assumptions, even if you know that they can be disproved later, because you need a, you need a framework by which to share a reality with other people. <laughs> of course, yeah. My my point is that we use the term like "oh, that can exist." I'm like, no, the term should be "there's no proof that that exists." Yeah, or as far as we know. With what we have, that doesn't exist. Sure. Especially when we talk about in space being infinite. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was putting out this metaphor to somebody the other day, or maybe it was just in my head, which is probably more <laughs> likely. Um, <laughs> but if I, if I give you five playing cards face down, and I tell you that one of them is the ace of spades, what are your chances of flipping over a card? With the ace of spades, one in five, right? Yep, 20%, sure. If you get to flip over all five, what are your chances? 100%. Exactly, because you're going to flip it over, right? You're going to flip over all five cards. Yeah, sure. Well, if 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 the ace of spades exists, you know, a representation of a possibility, right? If there are infinite cards and you can flip them over and you can flip them all over, that means that everything has the possibility of existing. And now you're starting to unravel the core concepts of quantum theory. Yeah, quantum theory is very popular with people in this realm, by the way. And, and not only that, but there, there are now plenty of people talking about how, how some of quantum and how some of string theory is, is, needs to be greatly refined too as well. But yeah, no, that's, that's, that's essentially the, the premise behind, kind of, I mean, I'm not a, physicist or anything like that but right. i mean that, at least from what i understand of quantum theory that's one of the core edicts of of quantum theory yeah so when you when you put forth like okay we we rely on our senses as our verification of truth even sure. when we when we defer to scientific principles and so forth those are based at their core in the senses sure we we not we may not be able to calculate the the distance between earth and the sun ourselves. But we trust that the person who did the calculation, we trust them. You know, it's a by proxy of their senses. Mm-hmm. We're saying they did the work and they actually saw the numbers and they actually did it. So it's still rooted in senses. So if we can't trust the senses a hundred percent and if infinity is the, really the limit of space. And if there are possibly Limitless, no, not limitless. We'll just say completely unseen dimensions mm-hmm. beyond the four that we know. Then there's absolutely no way that any of these things 
are completely ridiculous. Well, I mean, if, if, yeah, but if you think about it from that perspective, then there are quite a few things that we can't even make assumptions on. For example, um, as, as we understand it, gravity is still, as a concept, that is still not that old in the scope of human history. And our understanding of gravity as, as a, a force in the universe is so rudimentary. <laughs> oh, yeah, gravity, and, they don't we're, even... not even, we're not even talking about time yet and how time and gravity work together. And that's the fabric of our universe. And we barely understand well, time. Gravity is the snag in quantum theory. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. The reason quantum theory is not the theory of everything is because gravity doesn't make sense in quantum theory. Yep. Like, um, that doesn't work here. What is oh, it? It doesn't. That? They literally don't know what gravity is. You know, I was just yeah. reading something the other day. I need to read into it more because it was like a passing thing. But they said that if you actually do the the calculations, the moon doesn't make sense either. That the the moon should not be able to be in the orbit that it's in. That mm. there's that there there are mathematical problems with the moon. And this wasn't from one of the stranger things that i read this was actually from a science article sure so you take something as fundamental as gravity and something as fundamental as the moon and go we don't understand those then how are you going to tell me that it's not possible that dead people stick around or that people are visiting from other planets well, the other side of it, too, is that, you know, and, and this goes back to the sense thing that you're talking about, is that we measure the universe in very human terms. And right. I think that that's a huge mistake. Um, like understanding, understanding even something like the moon, for example, um, in the scope of a human lifetime is not something that, that is really that measurable because the moon could not could be totally impermanent like in a hundred million years from now the moon might go spinning off out of its orbit and it, like eventually to the point where it's no longer tidally locked to the earth and just go launching itself into space and even though for us a hundred million years is a long freaking time in the scope of the universe that's a blink of an eye man oh yeah and so like even which is the reason why like I still hold firm to this and I hope one day when I run for a political office that this comes out and everyone goes see he's a crazy nutball. Um <laughs> I still I still thoroughly believe that human civilization as we understand it is a lot older than we than That's we realize. So That's one of the conversations that I was re-listening to that I was going to cut out and put into I'm an episode. So, I'm so convinced by that. You well, know, there's um, more and more evidence mounting every day that that's true. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and if you look at if you look at a lot of the 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 evidence of of certain impact craters that we're still finding, by the way, that are freaking massive. Um, I mean, there's there's this very strong possibility that the you know even from the the perspectives that we go back in myth and legend when it comes to the scope of human history and religion and everything we understand about the world as we understand it and and how human beings came to be. Um, there's a reason why all the crea creation myths are inherently the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, have you? See, have you ever heard of the Coral Castle? Mm, wow, why does that sound so familiar? I feel like I've just read that recently. If you have a computer with, I mean, the, if you can pull it up right now, pull up images of Coral Castle. Because I'm, I'm this dude, this old dude, <laughs> built this thing out of this quote-unquote castle out of coral by himself. Whoa. And what nobody knows how the fuck he did it to this day. Jesus. They have all these theories. They're like, oh, he used pulleys and levers. And they're like, sure, he could have used pulleys and levers, he said. But in order, some of the ton, some of those are like nine ton rocks, solid yeah. rock. 
They're wow. like, in order for him to be able to do that with a pulley and a lever, his pulley and his lever would have have to have been 350 feet high. This thing's incredible. And to I don't know if it shows you the spinning door, but there's a there's one door. I think it's a five ton block of coral, and it was spinning on one ball bearing. Yeah, that's crazy. You, you could go up and touch it with your finger, and it broke. I don't know about. I don't know how many, how long ago. I'm going to say like 15 years ago or something. Jeez. And they had to bring in a crane to pull the block out to try to fix it. And they tried to fix it and they put it back and it, they couldn't get it to work the way he did. So like wow. they literally don't know how this guy did it. And along those same lines, by the way, check out the, uh, the antechambers above the uh, tombs in the Great Pyramid. Oh, yeah. Those huge block of stone, they're like, how did they get those up there? 15-ton granite, perfectly cut 15-ton granite stones, yeah. Well, yeah, they're so, um, shoot. I think it's Gilbeckley Tempe, but I'm not sure. Oh, I've heard this. (laughs) Where the stones stones are put together, but they look like the stones were like almost like melted. Yeah, where they look like they were fused, yeah. Because they're so tight. Mm-hmm. You know, like they say, like you can't fit a piece of paper between them, and that's bullshit. But they are really <laughs> perfect. Well, a really, lot of really perfect. Of, but a lot of the estimation on that is that at one point or another they were tighter. It's just erosion and time have have mm-hmm. you know. So, so at one point, I think there was one guy who was, I was uh, whose report I was reading on it who said that at some point um, there were a few of the stones that were microns apart. Jesus, like where you literally could not get. Where you're squeezing like molecules through there, <laughs> so insane. There's a I have a book saved about the coral castle. I haven't read it yet, but it's written by this guy who's he's actually on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. So he and he's a, he's mathematically minded as well. That's his that's his his form of autism or his superpower, as I like to call it. He's just really good at math, um, and he became obsessed with the coral castle. And he's he's high functioning, so he can he can write books, obviously. So he started like digging into the guy left like these pamphlets. He wrote pamphlets, you know, like we would call them short books now, but you know, at the time they call them pamphlets. And he had written these two pamphlets that were just like completely nonsensical. Mm-hmm. And this guy just like went through them, and he started over time started to understand kind of what this um, skull Skullman, I think is the guy who made the coral castle, Lee mm-hmm. Skullman. Um, he started to understand what he was saying. And basically if the guy was correct, it rewrites our understanding of magnetism and electricity <clears throat> and gravity. Mm. Like, and it's, I, I haven't read it, so I can't really talk to it. But it's very interesting because if you take in the context of the things that we were just saying about like those three examples, what if that's true? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what if what if you are able to manipulate gravity? Maybe the reason that gravity doesn't work in quantum theory is because we don't understand gravity correctly. Oh, I fully believe that. I, I do fully too. believe that we, that we don't understand time or gravity. Um, outside of a theoretical model that is horribly incomplete. Right. Well, you know, the thing that always puzzles me, do you remember this from science when they say, like, if you drop a feather and you drop a bowling ball? In a vacuum, yeah. 
that they they fall at the same rate. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody was trying to argue with me at one point. It's like they both hit the ground at the same time. I'm like, no, they won't, <laughs> because it, first of all, we weren't talking about a vacuum. The, the person I'm talking about, mm-hmm. but they didn't understand the difference between rate and speed. So oh, when sure. I when I think about when I think about the difference in those terms, I think about how we understand gravity. I'm like, what if you know, like. What if our understanding of gravity is the equivalent of assu- assuming that rate and speed are the same thing? Sure. And then when somebody goes, no, actually, and shows the diversion and the path, all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, then I can lift this block. <laughs> well, there's, there's also the understanding of, of time in that same sense, like time as a concept versus length of time and how, and how length of time differs depending on your perspective or vantage point. Right, like speed, uh, light speed travel. Yeah, and so exactly. Forth. Like, or or if you're close to, you know, the the theoretical models of of you being close to um, something with such a massive gravitational pull that time operates far slower for you, and there's physical evidence that that happens. Um, so time is relative. But if time is truly relative, then that means our understanding of the entire universe has to change. Yeah, then our understanding of the entire universe is relative then, because. That's right. That's it's right. it's one part of the equation, right? So once you once you make one part of the equation variable, the whole equation becomes variable. But this is the reason why we need a framework to operate with in order to have a shared experience that makes sense because if all of a sudden we all accept that time itself is relative, then we are in some big trouble. <laughs> right. Well, what you have to what you have to do is it's not a matter of of accepting the fact that things aren't absolute. Sure. Doesn't mean operating without rules and assumptions. The problem is, is that we make these assumptions as if they're absolute and we never leave the door open for any, to, for them to be disproved, even though that's the core basis of science. Well, even something that's provable, we can't accept. Um, for example, the, the belief that there were only what, two to three million um, indigenous the indigenous population of North America was only two or three million. I mean, I remember reading that way back in school. Um, and now our understanding of it is that there was at least 30 to 40 million. And that's still not really taught by popular science, even though most scientists accept it as, as being absolutely true. Um, like even something like that, where there's actual evidence that, that, that disproves the old rule, we still can't let go of our old rules. And that's, and that's not even talking about something that has an incomplete theoretical model um, for which we have no current evidence yet. Like, for example, we still have no idea really how time works, and we don't have any reason to believe that we will understand it anytime soon. But we still operate under an assumption that our model, as we understand it, is the absolute model. That's crazy. That's arrogant. And, and then, yeah, and then, and it's not even that we operate that it's that it's true. That's it's the arrogance, like you said. It's that we make fun of other things that challenge it. Oh yeah, because, that's true. Yeah, you know the assumption that 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 well, we've got, we have the right answer. It's like that's not the way things work. The questions are supposed to remain open. You know, I have a book, that, another book that I have yet to read, um, what, that challenges the theory that we all came from Africa. Because this apparently this guy says he says if that's true, then how come everybody doesn't have that DNA strain in them? Sure. He says the one that people, he, if I, I think I've read this correctly. 
it, I think thing, and it's part of the reason why. Yeah, another notch in my thing for believing that humanity is much older than than we believe it to be. Well, and also he's he says the one that, if I remember correctly, the one that strand of DNA that does seem to show up in everybody is actually Aboriginal. Yeah. So his yep. theory is that everybody came from Australia, not Africa. Yeah. Which I mean pretty drastic difference but then when you actually take pangea and put it all back together not really that drastic of a difference because hey by the way take a look at all of the different versions of that supercontinent through the earth's history and it'll fascinate the crap out of you Mm -hmm. because it's not just pangea pangea was the first or at least the biggest landmass that we understand but man it broke apart many different ways and at many different times throughout the the history of the earth which is not surprising nope Let's say, oh, we we took a system and we we came up with a really easy model and found out it wasn't easy. No yeah. shit, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh like, man, I like it already. I like being back, Chad. You have no idea. <laughs> My entire life has been dealing with finite things like the EDD and and oh, we should do this every month at least, yeah. um, just to like at least for our sanity. Yeah, I need I, I need to be able to talk these things out too because. <laughs> I get lost. I get lost in my own head where I don't even know. Like, oh, I don't know. Sometimes I, I feel like I'm on a different planet. Sometimes I don't mean like crazy, but I mean just like isolated. Yeah, sure. There's also um, speaking of, um, I just recently watched a bunch of random stuff and read quite a few things about how the Sahara um, used to be a lush and vibrant landscape. Interesting. You have to send that to me. I want to see that. Yeah, it's interesting. And and a lot of the physical evidence that um, I point to when it comes to the age of human civilization um, is actually from that area. Mm. How, how hilariously unexplored it is because of some cataclysmic event that happened in human history um, that rewrote the, the, the history of that area um, in such a way that there was a massive time gap between... Um, what it was understood as, as a lush environment and where it is now, which is this barren dead area. Yeah. I think there's, there's all these, we take these assumptions so often they're like, Oh, this is barren. It must've always been barren. Nope. That's, that's dumb. Especially that when we're dumb. talking about moving continents too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how point zero 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 degree difference in the tilt of the earth can dramatically change the climate for hundreds of miles. Right. You know, the more you start playing around with these thoughts and and stuff, you start going, you look at some of the loopier theories out there and you go, maybe that's not that crazy. Sure. Well, I mean, and I don't think any theory inherently is loopy um, in the sense that there's there's a reason why I don't believe that the earth is flat, for example. It's because there's empirical evidence that proves that it isn't. Um, But that doesn't mean that at one point or another, I didn't at least ask the question. Of course, the earth isn't flat, but it's not flat because we have physical evidence that proves otherwise. You know what I mean? Right. Well, my my one thing is we can't see the ice walls. Mm. So apparently, you know, like the thing, the theory is the thing that stops things from flying off the end is really tall ice walls. Yeah, that's crazy. If the earth was flat, you could see really far because there'd be no curvature to block you seeing distances. That's right. So if you got close enough to the edge, you would see the ice walls. Yep. So, but once again, dude, tomorrow somebody falls off the earth. Guess what? We have to rewrite the whole rules. Yeah. 
or if somebody discovers a massive crater like the one that they are currently exploring up in Scandinavia, uh, then we may have to rewrite the uh, the understanding that we have about extinction events on this planet. Mm-hmm. There are now estimations that um, there are far more extinction events that we, than we are aware of only because we haven't found the physical evidence for them. And not all of them come from cataclysmic uh, impacts. Um, quite a few of them come from things like climate change or the shifting of the magnetic poles or whatever it may be that, you know, um, dramatically changes um, the way our planet works. Um, right. You know, the one thing that we don't realize on many levels is that there, so there are two things, right? The first thing is that um, um, ecological models are extraordinarily sensitive, which means if you introduce any number of changes, like if you look at the environment in Australia, for example, simply introducing rabbits into that ecosystem completely shattered it. Oh, right? yeah. Um, and we're not even talking about a temperature change. So the, so the one thing that we make the assumption about is that, you know, it, it's, it's got to be some asteroid from, from outer space that comes along and completely smashes um, into the world and causes a nuclear winter that then kills off everything. No, I mean, there's, so the two assumptions, the two assumptions that we go, go by are that one um, ecosystems are pretty robust. Nope. That's not the case. Ecosystems are remarkably fragile. And number two, which is the more important one, the assumption we can make is that life is incredibly resilient. Right. Well, just think about, you know, the extinction level event that they assume was the crater that created the Gulf of Mexico, right? Yep. Say that wasn't an extinction level event. It still would have created huge migratory changes for the animals. Of course. And that completely changes entire ecosystems overnight. Not to mention what it probably did to the fucking ocean. Can you imagine the waves? Oh, sure. And well, let's, well, let's, that did the sea life? Not only that, can you think about how because of um, the heat generated initially, you have a bunch of polarized cap melt. And then because of the cold that follows, you have a refreezing. So you now take it, take it any glass of water that you have, um, put ice in it and then pour boiling water into it and see what happens. Right. Not to mention all the, all the stuff from the bottom that's that broken up and now is part of the water. Absolutely. The yep. pH balance of the whole ocean. ocean. Yep. The yep. dust and, and the ash in the air, what that will do to all the plant life. I mean, just, but not instantaneously. Like some of those changes could be hundreds of thousands of years changes. Yep. So like, like the crater we're talking about in Scandinavia, um, they are now estimating it's about 13,000 years old. And what's there's the a one in Russia? Russia? Oh, the, I uh, forget the name of it. It's like a G, uh, I think. I'll look it up right now. While yeah, it's the one, that's, uh, the one in Siberia, I believe it was. Yeah, let me look it up. What was? Yeah, it? but I mean, even even the asteroid that I'm talking about in Scandinavia, in Greenland, I believe it is the upper, the northwest coast of Greenland, thirteen thousand years old. Um, the 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 history of humankind is about ten thousand years old. There's a weird correlation there. Yeah, it's again, damn it, Bataglia. That's not what I was looking for. Bataglia crater. That's not the one I was thinking of. No, I know Tung, what you're talking. Tunguska. It's not Tunguska. That's what it's I was thinking Tunguska? of. That. Okay. I was thinking of Tunguska. Got it. I don't think that's a huge crater, but it was a it was a meteor event. Mm-hmm. Um actually, you know what? I I I'm sending you an image right now on your phone. <laughs> Tell me what this image looks like to you when you get it. 
This is something I've been waiting like four months to talk to you about. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay, what does it look like? Ah, oh, I don't want to see that. What does it look like? There's no they, nobody else can see it. What's it look like? Oh, Jesus. Um, it looks like one of the grays, man. Okay. That's not a gray. Oh but god. It, but it, it looks it like one, right? Freaks me out right now. Yeah. Thanks for okay. that. Thanks for the warning, dude. It's not a gray though. It's that it's one is, of the few things I have an irrational fear about. Okay. That is on. supposedly an 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 Asian spirit. Um so this is why I've been waiting to tell you about it. Oh. God. It looks like a gray. It definitely looks like a gray, except for it has tiny eyes instead of very big eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, for anybody that's actually listening to this, Lamb, as you can tell from that reaction, hates the grays. Oh. Terrifying. So this is going to trip you out, Lamb. In 1917, Aleister Crowley claimed to have made contact with an unearthly being. Okay, they say unearthly in the thing that I pulled up. Other people think that it was an Asian spirit of some sort. I'm assuming Chinese, um, if I remember correctly. And he channeled things in communication with this. And this is a drawing of that spirit that he communicated with. Okay. Which, as you say, looks like a gray. Mm -hmm. Many people believe that this is the origin of the grace. Yeah. Some people, some people believe that the story came, you know, that the way that they looked came from this, you know, mm-hmm. that, that there never were grays, but the, like the hysteria came out of this. Other people believe that when he made contact, that he opened a doorway and then that's the doorway that they walked through. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Do you know what the name of that creature you're looking at is? No. Lamb. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Oh man. <laughs> I'm not even You are sure so connected to the Grays it's not even funny. I don't even know what to. <laughs> and you know what's really weird about the damn Grays? I have absolutely no idea why I'm terrified of them. Yeah. It's... You know, like I'm not scared of much, man. Like I'm not scared of monsters, I'm not scared of ghosts, I'm not scared of any of that. But for some stupid reason, like just the sheer image of that popping up on my phone right now gave me the chills, the likes of which I can't describe to you. And how like, does it make you feel to look at it now and know that it has your name? It weirder. You know what's you know what's weird weird about that though is that it makes me feel connected to it somehow. Right. And I don't know how to reconcile that feeling. <laughs> that's part of the reason that I made the point of saying that some people believe that it wasn't an unearthly creature, that it was an Asian spirit. Mm-hmm. And you being Asian, I thought was a very interesting connection as well. That is freaking weird, man. Okay, yeah, that's really weird. strange. That, so that maybe my mind on so many levels, I don't even know what to do with that. Jeez. Maybe your preternatural, I'm going to go, I'm going to go a little crazy here and really stretch this out, but maybe your preternatural fear of grays is actually blocking you from the connection that you actually have. Or maybe it's the reason um, it's it, maybe my, my connection to it is the reason I have the preternatural fear. Yeah. Who knows? Both are very possible. God, that's freaky. God, I can't even look at that, but it's so weird. Dude, I, I need to delete it from my phone. I can't even look at it. Like it freaks me out. It's so weird that it has your name. Oh God. It's so weird. <laughs> 
It doesn't, when you really look at it though, it doesn't actually look like the grays that much. It has a big head. That's it. Um, it, it can, here's, here's why I think that it can. Um, because I think a lot of what people assume about the grays, I mean, now we're talking purely theoretical. I'm not saying I believe in aliens. Here's, here's that protecting thing, protection thing. Again. No one's, no one's going to hear this publicly. So we yeah. don't have to do protections I, either way. Um, so I, you see the lumps and just above its eyes, like that, that mm-hmm. large lobe. They almost I, look like eyes. Yeah. I get the sense that in the dark, um, you, you could mistake those for eyes. Or maybe if you were wearing a helmet of some sort. Yeah, or if they're wearing goggles of some kind, some kind of eye protection. You know, what like, I'd like to know is, what is that thing on top of its head? Oh, God, <laughs> who knows? All right, It's I'm hearts. Gonna Those up. are hearts. Again. I'm going to look at it again. Those are hearts on top of its head. Yeah, sure. Is that like a hat? Or is that something emanating from its head? Or is that, uh, I mean, if you look at the way their heads are shaped, um, Maybe our concept of what the heart is is based on that image. Maybe. I don't know, man. There's His body a, looks a, like a vagina, a, though. Yeah, true. Holy Which crap. Which is strange. Yeah. yeah. Look at. Jesus. I, I've been sitting on that for like five months. Man, that freaks me. I can see why you waited. I mean, that's. I, I assume that's probably the reaction you expected. And I, I talked about this when I, when I did an episode with this guy, Jim Perry. And I told him that I had that, and he's like, "Oh, what did what did he say when he when I when you told him about that?" I said, "I haven't told him yet." <laughs> your patience because, is shocking. I don't know if I could have stopped myself if I if I knew the connection and I knew the name of the damn thing, and it was named Chad. I don't know if I could stop myself. Yeah, it was hard, but, but I knew, I couldn't dead. text it. It wouldn't have had the impact as a text. No, no, you got to say it. You did it the only way you could. <laughs> oh my god! So that weird, so, right? That is so freaky to me. Oh man! When you wow, this is this has been a, this episode has gone so differently than how I thought it was going to go. It's a completely different thing. Yeah! Wow! This is just that for is, us. That is bizarre, man. That I keep really looking bizarre. at the screen, wrong screen. I have two computers, and I keep looking at the wrong screen. <laughs> like, how's the waveform pattern doing? Oh, wrong computer. Oh, so yeah, that. When you said so, aliens, that was what it was in the back of my head the whole time while we were talking about other things. It's like, I, don't forget to tell them this time. Don't forget to tell them. That is so crazy, man. Yeah, that yeah. blows my mind. I don't even know what to do with that that knowledge now. It's very strange. It is I very think this is this is why this is why I find these topics so fascinating to me is because one little thing like that. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, your relationship changes. Sure. Because if you let your overly critical, cynical mind, if you let it be in control for too long, it would completely discount something like that. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the fact that a little thing like that can actually alter your perception, there's, there's a value in that of some sort, even if it's just a psychological value. Mm-hmm. Of learning the limits of the human brain. You know, like to be able yeah, to contemplate yeah. these things, you actually stretch your brain in a way that I don't think even science can stretch your brain. Yeah, and I think that there's 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 an aspect of this that we really 
that really gets to me that 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 I, I'm not even sure how the hell I'm going to articulate this properly, but there's there's something in in wonder, you know, um, and it, which is weird because this this it I feel like the the podcast comes full circle when we talk about stuff like this. Um, in there's a reason why philosophy and science are so inherently linked. It's because you need the creativity, you need that sense of wonder, the ability to ask the question in order to conceive of the question that might lead you to an answer. Right. Well, you know, it's only a recent thing that science is completely divorced from the unreal. The sure. original scientists were alchemists; they were witches. You know, they there was a supernatural or a preter not preternatural but a supernatural or a paranormal aspect i wouldn't no not i don't want to say aspect partner to science that no longer exists and okay. i think that it's actually detrimental because having that partner to ask those strange questions i think is what pushed science forward sure to be able to sure. to be able to look at the moon and go, what if that's not what if that's not stone? You know, like somebody would ask, what if that's hollow? Oh, the gardeners are here. How how loud can you hear that noise? Mm, barely. Okay, good. Because I know this is a good microphone. It's really loud for me, but as long as it's not super loud for you, then we'll keep going. I mean, don't get me wrong, I can hear it, but I, it, it, I don't, it, I don't care. Back in a bit. Yeah. Like I said, not for public, but but yeah, I think that there's the separating those two has become detrimental. And like, there's part of me that like when I first started doing these topics, I wanted to go big and, um, you know, hit like the big topics. But what I found instead is I've actually been edging my way in. Where it's like, okay, well, this isn't too crazy of an idea, but let's, you know, like I did one on, um, there's a small section of Liz Gilbert's book, Big Magic. The mm-hmm. section she actually named the book for, where she presents the idea that she believes that ideas are actually living entities, and they actually move from person to person looking for a partner. Mm. There's a really great story to go along with it. So I, I'm like, that's first of all, I didn't expect a topic like that to be in the, this mainstream book on creativity. Yeah. So like, not a huge like jump into the craziness, but it was an edge into the topic. And I found it, I find it more interesting to being, to edging in. And I think that that's, it's different than most people will go straight to aliens. Whereas I'm, I want to, I'm, you know, like questions of new age and stuff like that, you know, like positive thinking. Those aren't, too far stretches, but I, I th- I'm, I've been finding those a really good place to start. Well, and 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 like the thing we were talking about with the indigenous population of North America, we do have empirical evidence of some of these things. Like I have it in my own life, you know. Like for example, um, I work for the government, and I'm working for the government during a time of pandemic. And I will tell you now that the stress that I feel has definitely had a a a tangible effect on my physical state, you know, and it's very clear that that's happening. 
So right. there has to be something to that. There has to be something to the, and if, if, if a negative feeling can affect you that way, a positive feeling can do just the same in the opposite direction. Exactly. And, and not only that, but I mean, I look around at, you know, the, so I have, I have the tug and pull on both sides of that, which makes it inherently complicated, which, you know, I also help to, to do a lot of activism stuff, some, some nonprofit stuff. And there's a tangible positivity that comes out of that too, as well. And it replenishes me and that's, and it clearly helps my physical state in that direction. And not only that, but from those groups, there, there, there are so many, for example, like one Orchard City Indivisible, we have our meeting once a week and we're in our 11th week now of doing virtual meetings because we decided, screw it, we're going to carry on. And I, I can't even tell you the number of people who are saying that, that that meeting defines their, their well-being that they feel better and more positive and healthier and, and more connected because of that. So that's a tangible representation of how that positive feeling. And, and, you know, you know, me as a person, I'm, I'm a pretty black and white, uh, tangible, sciencey, um, skeptical human being, but that, but I now, I see such clear indicators that those things actually have a very tangible effect on our physical world. I've having gone through all that period of severe anxiety that I went through, I mm-hmm. know it's true for a fact. But what's what I've found very interesting is reading stuff about um, magic and witchcraft. There's mm-hmm. these these assumptions that they are these crazy things. When you actually start reading about it, most of it is not really different than setting attentions. Mm-hmm. It's literally like it's actually not even very different than prayer. The, the, those three things are fundamentally the exact same thing. Sure. There's just there's outward manifestations of them that are different. You know, like or, where you do it or what implements you use to do it. But the actual mechanisms when you get into the people who are explaining what's going on are the same. You know, it's funny. I don't think it's about mechanisms. I Explain. think. I think it's about buy-in. And oh, totally. That's the mechanism. Yeah. And, that's and exactly think, it. And I think that, that the buy-in becomes the critical part um, in the sense that, like, for example, I'm, I'm not a religious person, so religion wasn't going to be my buy-in. You know what I mean? But right. whatever framework that I used in order to create that buy-in, to create that unrelenting belief, that unquestioned belief, is what allows me to feel those things in a way that has such a tangible effect. Right. There's that's there's a concept <laughs> there's a concept that's really popular in the mysterious, the paranormal right now, which is that buy-in when when it comes to experiencing strange things, you actually have to buy in first. Sure. That they find that you know, I, I think that's self explanatory. I don't need to get didactic, but basically you have to believe in it to some degree first. In other words, the door has to be open. And that makes sense to me. You know, like, oh, why don't you see UFOs? Because you think UFOs are stupid. So you've closed the door. And your brain is going to take whatever that you be, to take whatever you see and convert it to whatever reality you believe in. Sure. Exactly. That's why I think, you know, like, uh, look at Slenderman, right? Slenderman is fake. It was made up. Yeah. We, we know the origins of it. It was a... a a fictionalized folklore story. Mm-hmm. And then it became something that people started to believe in because they didn't know that it was fake, right? You know, they, there's that uh, 
documentary on HBO about those girls that tried to kill the other girl, little girl. Yeah, yeah. Because they believed that they were doing it for Slenderman. Ugh, yeah. Now there are reports of people actually literally seeing Slenderman. And that makes sense to me. Because it's like, yeah, the belief brought it into existence. Sure. There's um, there's a book called The Science of, of Getting Rich, which is like terrible, terrible title for what it actually is. But it was written like in the early 1900s or something like that. So, so the, the, the clickbait version? <laughs> no, it's just I think that those words weren't, they didn't necessarily, science wasn't as, as strict a word mm. then as it is now. And then getting rich was just like, I don't know. I think that the, the word rich didn't necessarily connotate monetary wealth at the time either. Mm-hmm. But in it, the, one of the core principles is that there, that the world is made out of this substance um, and these are actually like the words he uses, like it's like unknown substance or something like that. And that thoughts are the focal point of those, you know, they, things become real through thought and they bring it from that substance. And it's a really weird, it's, it's, it's an archaic way of talking about it in the sense that like explaining it like that doesn't make as much sense to us. It sounds like what substance, you know, like, but they were playing with tools that they hadn't those topics weren't talked about as much as they have been now. We have better vocabulary for those things. Sure. But if you take that idea of there's this energetic possibility in the world and that thoughts can manifest that, then it starts to make all of the strange things in the world make more sense. Like, why, why does this look like this to this person and this to this person? Well, Part of them is part of the thing that's creating it. Sure. So you're getting individualized. You know, like why does why aren't the grays consistently look the same? Maybe because they aren't actually extraterrestrials. Mm-hmm. That was John Keel's argument. He called them ultra terrestrials. Mm-hmm. He believed that they were beings from another parallel universe. I guess would be a way to say it. And that the reason that things were different every time is because part of them was being co-created with us, with our mind. That we are manifesting part of their appearance. Right. That in order for them to fully come into our reality, they don't have everything that takes to fully come into the reality. So they need us to finish it. Well, I feel like you can even do that with historical things. Think of how how defined our ideas of of how dinosaurs look or how they sound. Right. Well, you know, yeah. You take the idea of like even just think about the fact that like we have no idea what's right or wrong with that. We just found bones. Yeah. For all we know, you know, they could have human skin, mm-hmm. that kind of skin. We don't know. But when you take when you start taking these ideas and you you start filtering them through that, it starts to change the way that you face reality yourself. You go, am I choosing all of this? Like, am I really choosing for this to happen? Are we going? Are we going determinism now? No, I I mean in the sense that um, are you are familiar with Alfred Adler? A little bit, yeah. So he was a contemporary with Freud, but he was not a 
he was actually his beliefs were contrary to Freud. Yeah. Um, so his essential idea is that we choose things. So, um, for example, you get you get mad and you blow your top. In Freud, it would be because of something in your past or whatever made you unable to control your emotions. And you yeah. lost control. That's what we say, right? I lost mm-hmm. control. I lost my shit. Alfred Adler says that doesn't make sense. He says, because if we all walked around unable to control our emotions, the world would be really different. He says, in fact, he says, trauma doesn't exist. He says, we choose what the meaning of things that happen are. So, for example, I blew my lid because I lost my temper. Adler would say, maybe you lost your temper because you wanted to blow your lid. Like you wanted to exert control in that moment over that person. So Mm -hmm. you chose anger and you created the anger and then used the anger to be able to achieve your means of blowing your lid. I think, I think both are true in their own way, but sure. Like, I don't think, I don't think think one or the other is the defining characteristic. I think, I think our past definitely dictates a lot of how we choose, but I do believe in the choice thing. Um, Like, you know, dealing well versus dealing badly and making a choice within a moment based on something you've seen before um, or experienced before. I definitely believe that there's both components in that to a certain extent. I've been placing less and less emphasis on the meaning of the past. Because the more I learn about the brain, the more I learn that I have no idea what the past actually was. Mm. And it's, it's literally, we know for a fact that we're continually rewriting our past. That you and I could recall something that we both went to and something very recent and we'd still have divergences. Sure. And that's not actually because of what we used to believe, which was, oh, the memory just degraded. It's not that it degraded, it's that we've changed it. Sure. So how are we... I don't think we should be so confident going forward in making choices based on the past when we're not even clear what the past was. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the reasons why if you ask any prosecutor or defense attorney in the world, they will tell you that the least, weirdly, the most, the the thing we rely on most and the thing that is least reliable within the the scope of a court case is um, witnesses. Oh yeah. Well, eyewitness testimony is, this is, this one is the most of actually one more thing about being messy and disorganized. I forgot. This is one of the dangers of buying really fancy notebooks is something I've faced personally. You don't want to put messy things in there or you don't want to write or have to scribble something out and because yeah. it's a nice notebook. Right. You're trying but, to get it to feel like a, a actual printed something that people would go and pick off a shelf and read. Yeah. Like, oh, if I died and somebody picked this up, they'd think I was cool. Yeah. Which to some degree, anybody that's buying a fancy journal and writing in nice handwriting in it, even if they're not consciously thinking, they're probably subconsciously thinking that. And those are great. I'm not going to say anything about that because that's where I do my journal and my diary, whatever word you prefer. I do that in there, in one of those. But this scratch paper, as I've referred to it multiple times, this is just for 
doing all the stuff before the computer, think about all the shit you used to do where it's like, okay, oh, grocery list on here, on this corner of the paper. Then I did a little small little math thing right here. You know, maybe I did a little multiplication. Mm-hmm. And then over here, I just wrote out some band name ideas and then scribbled out three of them. What you, what you end up with on the paper is not important, but you needed the paper to be able to do the things that you were doing, like the band name thing. It was the process of crossing things out. Yeah. You're never going to have to look at the list and go, what did I cross out? You just used it to get to a, you know, so you're using it as a tool. So that's why having it be, having it able to do that is important too, because it's not just about capturing, it's about actually thinking on the paper. And go ahead, go ahead. No, no, say it's because you are actually like when you say you scratched it out, it's like you only, not only did you scratch it on a bit, but you were literally scratching it out of your head. It was like, yes, exactly. It was like on your fucking like people that, you know, on the iPhone, you're hold something, you swipe it over and that little delete fucking button pops up. You hit that. It's the same fucking thing. Um, But it's having that physical, for me, it's having that physical connection to something that was in my head. I've now seen it physically manifest on something that I can touch and I can pick up, I can tear it up, I can burn it, I can crumple it and throw it away, I can eat it. You know, it's like that makes whatever it is part of reality and for me it's important to always remember that i am in at least i think i am in a reality and so by making like that something, stranger thing thing stranger thing thing stranger thing, thing, things thing uh, article reality is analog yeah no a hundred percent and by re- remaining grounded in the analog um way of doing things is i feel like it helps understand and utilize the non-analog things properly and in the right way and at the right times. Um, Because you understand that, and I feel like you're reminded um, and kept aware at all times that if all of the, the digital, you know, stuff goes away and it can easily can, you're still able to function and exist beyond that back into the real world, which we and the digital things all exist. Right. Oh, and that's not even, we haven't even mentioned the different types of learners too. If you're a visual learner and you don't have scrap paper, thinking is probably really hard for you. Yeah. <laughs> you need to like actually play. With, I think I'm a visual learner to some degree because there are certain things I can't do without a piece of paper in front of me. I just can't. Yeah, no. I think it's, I think it then it's, it's more of a, where does it start? Can it start with the thinking and go to the visual or can it be, it needs to be visual first and then you can go beyond that after you've taken the visual and then start to deeply think about it. Right. Cause I've always been that way where, you know, I can learn lots of different things. I need you to show me at least once and tell me, talk me through it as you're doing it. And then I can leave you and go about my way and figure it out. After right. that, but I need this need to see and hear it first, and then I can think about it and analyze it and figure out in my head how I'm capable of doing it because of how I am and how I do things as opposed to how you do things. Yeah, you need like a video capture that you can yeah. refer back to, like okay, it's, oh yeah, okay, okay, right, 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 right. Okay, one other one other thing about the scrap paper. This is the hardest thing, and I think this is the hardest thing for everybody. But in particular, I will focus on myself. Learning to recognize your thoughts. Um, 
<laughs> sounds ridiculous. What I mean by that is um, I could be listening to an episode of Joe Rogan. For anybody that's listening to an episode of Joe Rogan, that usually means I'm in for at least three hours of content. During that time, I am thinking about things. That's why I like listening to that show. But sometimes I get so wrapped up into the show that I don't recognize I'm having a thought. So it's it's happening, but it's happening in this passive way. Like um, Neil deGrasse Tyson was the last one I listened to. And uh, they're talking about a black hole. Well, all of a sudden, I was probably thinking something about a black hole. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean I have to write down every single thought that's in my head, but anything that's novel or anything that's useful, I have to learn to be able to recognize those and not let them just slip away in the stream of all the unimportant thoughts. You know, like uh, I watched the documentary on uh, the Satanists trying to put up a, a statue next to the Ten Commandments. Um, because they wanted religious plurality to be represented. That they mm-hmm. want to show that there's more than one. Um, it's called Hail Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched that. I could have just been like, oh, good documentary. And I had thoughts during it. But then I was thinking like, oh, being able to recognize like, oh, I'm thinking about the implications of the Constitution right now. I'm thinking about plurality. I'm thinking about... Uh, the difference between doing something to shock people and doing things to prove a point. Mm-hmm. These are all things that I can write down. All the other thoughts that I had during that, like that guy has a weird face or something yeah. like that. Don't yeah. need to write that down. So that's that's a very important to be able to filter and recognize your thoughts. And that's that's a skill. Like I'm barely learning that one. As I catch myself afterwards and go, oh, I really enjoyed that episode. And I have to ask myself like, why? Right. Yeah. What was I thinking about? <laughs> Are you getting stuck on the wrong points? Are you getting? Um, yeah, I find myself getting um, lost in like too many of the the ridiculous like what ifs, like expanding beyond you know what was actually being held you know in context. Um, so I feel like I. I suffer from the same thing you do, but in the opposite direction, where I like start going way crazy beyond it. Mm-hmm. Not not super basic of just like that guy should not comb his hair that way, you know. It's like <laughs> um like what if, you know, just crazy implot I mean, I haven't seen that documentary, so I can't even say like where my crazy thoughts would go, but almost like, you know, what if like Jesus was a Satanist? <laughs> what if this was his true message I just kept going but uh, yeah no I feel you okay and then now the other two forms of writing that are left journaling kind journaling. of journaling but the reason that journaling I think is important is because journaling is taking all those things you know all these little things you're not you're not going to do something with every single thing that you've grabbed in your scrap paper but some of those things you don't really understand yet. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, if I had a thought about surveillance capitalism, the first time I heard about it before I had read anything about it, like, that's an interesting thought. They're collecting everything. What What do I feel about that? Why do I feel that? I don't know yet because I haven't thought about it yet. Right. And I just captured it. Yeah. So journaling is a way to be able to do that. That you can sit down and go, okay, what do I think about that? And then write about three pages because 
journaling is a process in the sense that from the beginning, you don't have to know where you're going. Right. Well, you're, you're not going, yeah, you're, you're not really trying to get an end goal. You're just trying to be and continue on the journey into the unknown. Yeah, it's like, it's like a, you're taking it for a test ride. Yeah. Like, what, what do I have to say about this? I don't know. I'm well, just out for a mental walk here. It's like a conversation where you don't have an agenda. You know, when you have an agenda, you're trying to get a point across. When you don't have a point to get across and you're just having a conversation, you have no idea what's going to go. Like a lot of my episodes with guests, mm-hmm. I don't have an agenda. So I'm finding out where they go. Yeah. So I think that that's really important to be able to go through that process. Um, what's his name? David Sedaris has this process that I find completely fascinating. And I'm... A, more than a little bit jealous of. So he always has a little reporter notebook, mm-hmm. which for anybody who doesn't know what that is, it's like a little pocket notebook, except they're long. So it's like almost like the length of a pen. It's like when you see in, in movies, when you have a reporter walk up and they talk and they flip out that black fold and they have a long, just white sheet of paper and they're just sitting there writing down and then they flip it closed. That's a reporter. Exactly. And you can get spiral ones too, which are less fancy than that. I think that's what he uses. Um, and some of them get really long. Like it's like, I don't know, like six inches long. <laughs> that's about average, I think, or just below. Yeah, that's an average. I'm using air quotes right now. Reporter's mm-hmm. notebook. Mm-hmm. But anyways, so he's... Brought he, to you by Bang Bros. <laughs> he's continually putting stuff down like we were talking about. He's using that as his scrap paper, right? Mm -hmm. And what he's writing down is for him, he's, if anybody's not familiar with him, he's very funny, um, but he has a very wry sense of humor and his writing is somewhere between a short story and a memoir. Somewhere in there. Hard to explain if you don't know who David Stars is. And uh, most of it, uh, almost all of it, all, Actually, not almost all of it. All of it has to do with himself in the sense that he's exploring his life. Either things that have happened to him recently, you know, like I'm on the subway in London and I see this guy with a weird hat. So he's writing that in the notebook. Remember the guy with the fucking weird hat? Blah, blah, blah. Or he's remembering, oh, when I was six, my sister stole my marbles. Fucking bitch. Um, <laughs> so he's continually writing stuff like that down. Then what he does is every morning he pulls out the notebook and looks at what he'd written from the day before and then sits and expands it every, every single thing. So my sister stole my marbles. Okay. Let me tell the story of my sister. I'm making the sound of a typewriter right now, which I don't know if you guys can hear. Um, my sister stole my marble. Let me tell that story. Let me try to remember every detail I can about it and just types it all out on a typewriter. And then I think it's a typewriter. It doesn't really matter. Everything. The guy with the hat. Let me write down everything about the guy with the hat. What else does that make me think of? He just writes it all. And it's not all going to be something he's going to publish. But he just writes all of it. And then he... Maybe he uses a computer. I can't remember. But I know that he gets it all printed. And then he binds them. Hmm. Like, uh, you know, those... I think he uses those plastic spiral things. Yeah, the- uh, where you punch a thousand holes in the side and then stab that yeah, shit through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And then those are his journals. So he'll go through and then when he wants to expand something into a book piece, he'll go through those and go, okay, let me take this one and work on that one. Take this one and work on that one. But he's, he's not using every single piece. I love that process. Just because he's taking a small thing, going somewhere with it. So that's a great way to look at thinking. So he's using it as steps. And that journaling step is the fleshing out step. And then the last is the one that I used, which is authoring or writing, which is when you're taking those thoughts and you're giving them a purposeful structure. Because even in journaling, you don't have a structure. So now you're taking it, you're going, okay, I should start here. And then I should go here. And then my point is that now you're actually working on the actual architecture, like I said before. Yeah, because you've jumped, you've taken the jumble of ideas, you've given them tangibility, and then you can step back and look at them, lay them out without trying to remember all of the ideas and have your brain kind of flush out and be empty. And then just be like, okay, this one, I can take this one, and this one can go with this one. And I can find a way now to just take this one and this one and connect them. And now we're doing what we wanted, right? Connecting right. thoughts. Now we're, yeah, exactly. The thoughts are busting down. But those are even those <laughs> bust down. <laughs> I almost missed it. You almost did. Uh, I was like, I'm in the middle of a thought. Wait, caught it. Caught yeah. it. Anyway. Um, but I still think that, that even that that structure of, of authoring is still an introductory phase of connecting thoughts. Yeah. But even if we did all of the steps of the writing that we talked about right there, we still wouldn't be at the thing that I want, which is to write things like that guy was writing. I think you have to do all of the steps. You need the, you need the good input. You need the talking conversations. You need the silence and the walking and the, the passive and the active thinking time and the silence, I think I said twice. And then you need all the steps of the writing. You need all of those because all of those, the ones before the writing feed into the writing part. Right. The more mm-hmm. things that you're going to get in that scrap paper, the better those things are going to be if you're doing all the stuff before. So yeah. I think they're all integral into that. So like that's this is like what I've written out here is literally a game plan for myself to get to that place. Like these are things you need. To, like this is almost like a letter to myself, Chad. Yeah. These are things that you need to do if that's what you want. So I, I think ultimately what I'm saying is the moral of my story, which is if I want my thoughts to connect more, I have to work at it. Yeah. I have to use system two to set forth a plan to create it. And that was probably my biggest problem is I wanted something, but I wanted it to happen without work. I wanted it to happen reactionary, system one. But it's not system one. That's system two thinking. And if you're going to do system two thinking, you need to use system two. Yeah, you had to commit, and that's the and that's literally like I think about that. I'm like, well, why don't I spend more time at my desk, like <laughs> focusing on something? Like, hey, let me let me write this out. Let me just sit here and work on this. And that's a good question, right? That's then you when you take it back and you look and you go. Most of the time, you find you like this thing that I want that I think I'm actually capable of, which is an important thing to clarify. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to be a female supermodel tomorrow. I'm right, not right. capable of that because number one, I'm not a female and I'm not hot. But having something you want that you're capable of achieving and putting it forth in front of yourself and going, okay, what's my plan? 
I think I lost like the middle of that sentence somewhere or that thought. That makes sense. I feel like yeah. I, I got sidetracked by the supermodel thing and I missed a chunk there. Did that what I was saying make sense or did I jump? I don't know. I was, I was thinking about you and ballet slippers as a supermodel. <laughs> okay. So one more ba- tangible ballet thing. bear. Yeah. Uh, and what? Huh? Not as tangible as the image that you've just put in everyone's mind. Um, <laughs> You're the one that created it. But for example, all of this thought, would it work? Or am I just, you know, am I just spitballing here? Would this actually work? And I say it absolutely would work because my journey to this episode mm-hmm. required me doing all of those things. Yeah. I started with no connected ideas. Right. So, like here's very short rundown of how this thing came about. I'm getting good input. I'm reading the red hand files number fifty nine. Boom, there's a spark about you know the what's right what's right before you. I take that spark. And instead of just letting it go, I write it down. And then I'm doing something later and then I'm remembering that weird studies thing and I'm going, okay, oh, yeah, that's that's what I want. How do I get there? The thing right before me, okay. Um, and all of a sudden, I'm starting to put these things together and I'm going, okay, let me do a little searching. Let me do a little research into this topic. And then boom, I have this reference to Daniel Kahneman. And then I'm remembering that book. So now I'm connecting to something I've read before. Now, I didn't remember all the details of System 1. I actually had to reread some things. Mm -hmm. But now I'm able to connect those thoughts. Now I've got three things connected. And then now I'm I'm coming. I've got this outline. So I've structured it out. But structured it out close to a journaling Mm -hmm. situation, right? I didn't really... But I did just throw down a bunch of words. I didn't, you know, sit and like try to create a written piece about it, right? Right. You have a rough draft. Yeah. I just, you know, like a first thought equals tags or whatever. <clears throat> System one equals bus about to hit you. Just little notes. And then what did I do? I came... Well, if actually, there's a period of time where I had some silent contemplation because I was just kind of hanging out before we recorded. Then I came in, had a conversation. Now I've talked this out with you. Now, between your input and things that have occurred to me during this episode that aren't included in this, I've come to a better understanding and I've connected.